Well, we're going to get into the book of James today. Open up your Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 8. I'm thankful for Mike Kiowski and Dave Gruthison. Didn't they do a great job, Pastor Dave, while I was away uh, preaching the Word? <clears throat> we're continuing the um, topics that they started preaching on, which is how love proves faith, especially love for those who desperately need your attention, your care, your compassion. James really wants us to evaluate if our faith is true, genuine, saving faith. He talks primarily today to two groups of people, both found in the church, those who are truly saved and their love proves it, and those who say they're saved but they're not. The fact that they're unloving proves that they are saying they're Christians, but they're truly not Christians. How can we be a church filled with God's love? How can we be a church filled with compassion? How can we be a church emptied of favoritism and selfishness? Well, we're going to learn about that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you have given us these instructions in the Bible on how we can know of your great love for us, how we can show that love to others. Grow our faith. Help us to test and examine uh, where we truly stand with you. And we pray that it would all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, James chapter 2, verse 8. Are you there? Are you there? All right. It says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Really, the heart of this passage is love proves faith. If you're loving, you're proving that you are filled with the love of Christ. If you're unloving toward others, that proves that God's love is not in you. Your treatment of those around you shows how God has impacted your life. The first thing you can write down is this. If we're going to learn how to be a loving church, love others as you love yourself. You can put that down. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's the golden rule, right? Love others as you love yourself. This, this has been phrased a few different ways. Sometimes you hear love others as you would expect to be loved, meaning treat others as you expect to be treated. But this is a little different. This is treat others as you treat yourself. So how many of you put clothes on this morning? Raise up your hand nice and high. If you decided to get dressed today, wonderful job. I applaud you. <clears throat> That's you taking care of you. How many of you had a little breakfast this morning? Some food, some coffee, put a little something in your mouth before you came? Bravo! That's you loving you. You take care of yourself. Loving yourself is the default setting of the human heart. You will care for yourself, feed yourself, clothe yourself, and uh, you do that naturally, right? Uh, you'll shower, you'll get clean, some of us more than others. And, and it's because you want to take care of yourself. It's the default setting of the human heart. You don't really need to be trained to do it. Eventually, you'll figure that out. So God wants you to learn, based on your needs, how to spot the needs of others. And if all you do is care for yourself and love yourself, you're missing out on the purpose for your life. You're supposed to love others as you love yourself. It says here in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, 
I like that. When I think of royal, I think of a king. I once met a king, a real king. Have you ever met a real king? I didn't think so. I was in college, and uh, I, went, I went to this thing, and uh, look at, this is heavy metal Ryan. I was a drummer back there in college, meeting a real live king. He lives in Schaumburg. <laughs> That's at medieval times. Have you ever been there? It's in a castle. They feed you a wonderful meal, and he's a real king. And for that magical evening, you feel like you are a subject in his kingdom. It's great. When I think of royal law, I think of Christ as being my king, and he has handed down a law of the land, and I'm under it. He expects me to live this out. It's a governing rule over my life. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what he said. We'll put it up on the screen. In Matthew 22, 37 to 40, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When James says here, the royal law, he mentions God's word several times throughout the book. What does he mean by that? He calls it different things. He calls it the word of God, the law of liberty, the royal law. He's he's referring to the same thing, though. He's referring to the Old Testament as fulfilled and expanded by Christ. Okay, did you get that? He's referring to the Old Testament as fulfilled and expanded by Christ. That's what he means when he says God's word or the law. And he says we should fulfill that law. How? Through love. Through loving others as ourselves. The heart of the law of God is love. Hey, this is a huge deal. This could be revolutionary in the way you see your life uh, playing out. You were made in the image of a loving God. You were created to be like Him. The way you do that is waking up every morning to love Him and to love others. That's the meaning of your life. Sadly, we wake up, though, expecting others to love us and expecting God to love us. And we live upside-down lives where we get and get and take and take. We don't understand that we were put here to give. Jesus stepped down from heaven. He let go of the treasures of eternity. He became poor so that he might bless you. That is the spirit of sacrifice. That's what it means when it says you're here to love God and to love others. How do we do that? We care for their needs. Food, clothes, shelter, security, encouragement. That's what we do for them. And that shows that we understand what we're here to be all about. Now, James throws this out there generally, but he has a specific application in mind. Look at verse 9. He says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Jot this down. Love, uh, uh, avoid loving people based on their income. I could just throw it out there and say, love others as you love yourself. And you can say, okay, but that's foggy, that's big, that's out there. How do I apply that? Well, one specific application here is we are not to love other people based on their income. What was going on in the churches that James was writing to? Well, you had the rich, really rich. They were pompous, they were arrogant. Some of them were throwing their weight around in the church. Some of them weren't even saved. Then you had the poor. 
They were being overlooked. They were being oppressed. They were being despised. They were treated as second-class citizens in the church. Then you had the middle class, and they were catering to the rich. They weren't standing up to them. They were allowing this mistreatment to go unconfronted. And James writes this to tear all of that down. He said, hey, the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. That means do not show favoritism in God's church. Wow, what a challenge. We will all be tempted to love those people who can profit us. We will all be tempted to avoid those people who drain us, who cost us something. Now our heart is being challenged here with this truth, and we have to ask, how are we doing with this? Do we love those when there's a kickback only, or do we love those when it costs us something and we don't get much in return? We have to avoid loving people based on their income. How are you doing with this? Do you treat people the same regardless of what they're worth? Or do the rules change when they have money or when they don't? Do you suddenly get more kind or happy or thoughtful when you're around someone who has greater net worth or when you need something from them? Do you suddenly get less loving, less attentive, less kind, less motivated when you're around someone who can't give you anything in return? How does your heart sway based on the money the other person has? We have to avoid this temptation to treat people better the more they have and the more they can profit us. Hey, if I treat people great, if they can profit me, who am I really loving? Myself. That's not love. That's selfish. We have to learn to love those who can't love us back. Love others as you love yourself. This means avoiding loving people based on their income. Jot this down. We learn here that our love and our money must prove our faith. It has to prove our faith. He's interrogating the faith of people here, sorting them into two groups. He said there's the one person who's loving their neighbor as themselves impartially. They're doing well. There's the other person who's showing partiality. He's convicted by the law as a transgressor. He's talking to people who would claim to be Christians. God's word is showing us here how we evaluate if we're truly saved. There are six trials that James mentions. We've got three of them listed up here that come up today in the text, the words that you use and the words that others use towards you, the love that you are supposed to show to those in need, and then your money. And what we're finding out here is that these three can prove that you are a saved child of God, or these three can indict you. And based on how you're stingy with your money and you don't love the poor and the words you say about them are, are, are so condescending, maybe you're not a Christian after all. We're supposed to be trying to figure out which group we're in, but our love and our money must prove our faith. Now, no one loves perfectly. All of us would be growing in this ability to love. So, so there's going to be plenty of times where you fail to seize an opportunity. I was sitting at a stoplight uh, in Palos just this last week, and um, there were people out there with the, with the coin cans raising money, and they had, they had something on their vest. They had a word. I didn't even know what the word was. Did, did you see them out this week? What, what's that word? Great, you can say it. I can't even say it. I was like, maybe I've seen that word before, but I don't even know what that is. So now I'm like, all right, do I give to this if I don't even know what that is? Like, I, 
And I started wondering, is it a cult? Like, I want to be careful that I'm not giving my money. Like, yeah, I'm kind of skeptical of the Shriners. They wear those hats. I don't even know what they're about. And I, so I'm now up, up in my head wondering if I should give to this. And then I see on the vest that they're handing out jelly bellies if you give. So now my self-interest kicks in, and I think, well, boy, I sure would like some jelly beans. And, uh, and I'm about to roll my window down, and then I'm thinking to myself, well, that's selfish if I just give to get the jelly beans. Then, but if I don't give, then... Uh, and I got all stuck in my head. Then the light turned green, and I had to drive off without my jelly beans. <sighs> I don't know. In that situation, what's the right thing to do? It's kind of one small opportunity to do the right thing. By the way, I told that story in the first service, and somebody came up to me, and they gave me the bag of jelly beans that they got from giving to that cause. But now I'm really riddled with guilt, because how can I eat jelly beans that someone else bought with their donation? I can't eat them. I feel guilty. Who wants them? I'm going to give them out, because I can't eat them. There you go. Great. Now that's on your conscience, brother. I share that because we will find ourselves in these small crises of faith. Do I give? How do I give? Don't I give? How do I do that? Uh, All the time. Maybe not every day, but regularly we'll have the chance to at least do something to show that we're growing in love for others, right? And if you miss the opportunity once, it doesn't mean that you're hell-bound. But if you always miss the opportunity, it makes you wonder, where is the love of God? Uh, Here's some pictures from Brashov uh, when we were there last week. It's a tourist town, beautiful city, and so there's always people sitting out in the courtyard, and uh, you, you meet new people all the time. Here's another picture. But as as you're sitting out there, um, beggars will come up and they'll make the rounds, gypsies. Um, And the first trip we were there, we were really surprised by this because usually little children come up and they're so malnourished, they just look sickly. Pregnant women will be walking around with babies in their arms um, and they come up and they just ask for something, for money. And so Pastor Christy and I were talking and uh, he, you know, now that I've been there three times, I know a lot more about this culture of gypsies and how they set things up. And he said, you have to be careful because it's basically an organized crime ring. And he drove us through the gypsy neighborhoods and they have huge, luxurious mansions, gold inside of them. I mean, millions of dollars. And he explains that they have a few heads of these families who send the family out and, and they oppress these people. They, make, they, don't, they, they have to look sickly and they're not dressed very well and they're not fed very well because they have to look needy. And based on that, these people collect this money and bring it right back to the, to the men in particular who are exploiting them. He said, so you can't just say, I'm going to give $100 to this person because all you're doing is fattening up the people who are exploiting those who are in need. And, and so my head's kind of spinning and I'm like, well, how, how do you then help? And he said, well, there's a lot going on. There's people going in to do ministry here. And he said, but basically, you just have to be careful. So um, I knew this, and I, I just observed as we were coming out of lunch one day that there was this woman there begging with her, her child. And Pastor Christie said, oh, come, come on, come, come with me. And they went right back into the restaurant, and he bought them a meal, and they brought them outside. And uh, they, they sat down, and, and he said, okay, I, I want you to take a bite. And they're like, oh, okay. So they opened it up, they, they took a bite, and then he left. And so I said, why did you ask them to do that? And he said, well, if you give them food, they bring it right back to the men. They're not allowed to eat it. But if they start eating it, the men won't touch it. So you always have to make them start eating it before you leave. And I thought, wow, here is a guy 
who could easily say, it's a bunch of corrupt, no goods, why would I give anything to them? Yet he finds a wise way to show compassion. Small thing. And, and that's moving. And uh, wow, how do we do when we find that opportunity to show compassion to someone? Yes, with a stranger. Uh, do we do anything, ever? Or do we do nothing, always? Um, you know, and not only those who are strangers to us, but our family members who are in need, our our children, uh, our spouses, our, our parents, how do we know what they're going through, care deeply, and help in a way that doesn't hurt? We should constantly be growing in this capacity to love other people. If we do, then our love and our money prove uh, that we are faithful children of God. James 2.5 is clear. James says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. There you have a brother who's got less than you, who's in great need, and the Bible says God has chosen that person, God loves that person. They are as much of an heir to the kingdom of Christ as you are. Who are we to treat them as anything less than us? This is a challenging truth. Love others as you love yourself. Avoid loving people based on income. Our love and our money must prove that we're truly saved. Well, he goes on to say this in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What does that mean there? So there's two groups of people he's talking to. Saved Christians who show it by their love. Christians who are not, people who claim to be Christians who are not saved and their lovelessness proves it. He's now talking to both of them. And he's saying, If you keep the whole law, but you break it at one point, you're a lawbreaker. That's true of you if you're saved. That's true of you if you're not. He's teaching us our relationship to God from the beginning. He's doing this to show us how we will become loving towards those around us. So he says, okay, anybody who's broken one point of it is accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. That's hilarious. So I kill someone, then I'm called up in front of the judge, and he's like, what do you have to say for yourself? And I'm like, well, at least I didn't commit adultery. What judge would accept that? He's showing how foolish it is to say, well, I broke that law, but sure, I didn't break this law. So it's foolish to say partial obedience makes me righteous. He says in verse 12, so speak, there's the words, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy, mercy, or shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is he saying here? He's saying we are all breakers of God's law. All of us. You and me. And we need God's great mercy to save us. If we know that from the beginning, that we're breakers of God's law, that his love has saved us, we will love other people. If we think God's going to save us, even though we're sinners, because we obeyed part of his law, we don't, we don't act like we need God's love. And so we won't show that love to other people, because we think we have saved ourselves. Two groups of people. Jot this down. Number two, love like your life depends on it, because it does. The first point answered the question, how? How do I love others? Well, love them as you love yourself. The second point answers the question, why? Why should I love others? Uh, Because your life depends on the love of God. 
If God didn't love you, you wouldn't get to heaven. Therefore, you should love others the way He has loved you. The best way to evaluate whether you are truly saved is to examine your relationship to God's law. We believe that right and wrong come from God. We believe that He's a moral being. And therefore, it's from his nature that we find out what's right and wrong, true or false, good and bad. We don't get our sense of right and wrong from Sesame Street. Oh, because some grouch came up out of a garbage can and told us something was right or wrong, we believe it. We don't believe what's right and wrong. We don't get that from a dancing dinosaur named Barney, right? right? It's not because some fun kids TV show told us that stealing was wrong that we believe it. It's because God's nature is true and loving that lying is wrong, that hatred is wrong. Truth springs forth from his very being and you are made in his likeness. So when we sin, we don't just violate the opinion of some court, we break God's moral law. When you understand that you are guilty before God of breaking his law, you understand how much you need his love. This seems a little harsh though. In verse 10, for it to say, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Why why does James say this? Is he trying to show us that God's standards are too high? No, he's trying to show us the nature of how God's law works. But John Stott says that here James compares God's law as if it's like a sheet of glass. And if you throw a brick, it strikes one place, but it breaks the whole window. The same is true of God's law. You can't break it a little. When you break God's law, you are an outlaw. You are inviting God's judgment on your life. Every sin rivals the authority of God and makes us unfit for heaven because there can be no sin in heaven. We We have to understand how God describes our relationship to Him in order to understand how much we need His love to save us. When I think of the word outlaw, I think of uh, Back to the Future 3, where they go back to the Wild Wild West. Have you seen that one? Back to the Future 3? Check this out. Who's this a picture of? Do you know that? Mad Dog Tannen. The same actor that plays Biff in the other Back to the Future movies plays this guy. And when you look at that guy, what do you see? I see dirty teeth. I see a filthy beard. I I see a dark heart. I see a man up to no good. And the Bible says that's you. You're an outlaw. You're a lawbreaker. You will come before God in his court and be found guilty. That's the starting point of your relationship to God. How do you become, how do you enter into a loving relationship with God? Some people think, well, I was just born and God loves me just the way I am. That's not true. You need God's love to save you from your sin. Based on our depravity, we desperately need God to forgive us for our sins and to give us power to stop sinning. When we get that, then we understand what it means for God to love us. Jot this down. Here's how our loving relationship with God is built. Jot this down. We have to admit that we're guilty in God's courtroom. Have you done that? Have you admitted that you have a legal problem with God and you'll be thrown away forever? because of it. Do you agree with God and his word that the book that bears your name will condemn you forever? Check this out. This is a picture of a courtroom uh, and with a gavel. The day is going to come when you stand before God and his heavenly counsel and you give an answer. 
Did you ever watch the People's Court growing up? I watched the People's Court with Judge Wapner. And what happens at the beginning of each episode? What, what does Rusty the Bailiff say when he comes out? All rise. Come on, get up, everybody. Let's do this. All rise. The Honorable Judge, Ryan Hall, is now taking the bench. The court is now in session. You can go ahead and have a seat. Except for you, Hector, I'd like for you to please come on up here. Come on up here for your judgment. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I'm just kidding. You can have a seat. You were sweating. Guilty. Guilty. You were lucky I like you, right? If I didn't like you, I'd bring your kids up here and I'd have them talk about how you've done this week as a parent. Watch out. Guilty. <laughs> hey. That feeling that that Hector just got is the feeling you're going to get in heaven when your name is called and it's your time for judgment. See, we understand here that God wants us to be loving, but in our culture today, that automatically to them means you're not allowed to judge anything. If you're loving, you're not judging. In the Bible, loving and judging go together. Loving someone means you're trying to rescue them from God's judgment, right? That's true loving behavior. And what the Bible says here is, if you're picking and choosing what you're obeying, which this is exactly what Americans are doing, I'll I'll obey some of the Bible, but the rest of it, that's just your opinion. Selective obedience is disobedience. No one will be accepted in God's court of law because they've obeyed part of the Bible. And it talks about a loving heart here. It says, if you show partiality, you're condemned as transgressors. If I decide, pick and choose who I am and I'm not going to love, I'm condemned because the love of God is not in me. There's two groups of people here. There are those who say they're guilty in God's court of law and they are forgiven by God's grace. And then there are those who don't love others, don't follow God's word, and they will be condemned. Which group are you in? Well, have you admitted you're guilty in God's court of law? Our world is discarding God's moral law. This causes shameless behavior to flourish as our values are persecuted and they're ridiculed. And listen, judgment is coming very soon. We need to know that. It's not loving to applaud, to high-five someone who's breaking God's law. That's the opposite of love. It's loving to tell someone the truth, to care about them. But that starts when you admit, I'm guilty in God's court of law. Jot this down, then you receive God's mercy in Christ. It says here, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Just before that in verse 12, it says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I love that phrase, law of liberty. The law will condemn me. But there's a way for me to be liberated from that condemnation. How? How? God's mercy. This is great news, everybody. There is a law. I am condemned by it. But Christ perfectly fulfilled it. Because he totally kept the law, he can stand in my place on judgment day. And I can say I'm with him. And I can be saved because of what he did, not because of what I did. That's called mercy. Mercy is when the judge looks at a guilty sinner like me and has mercy because of who I'm standing next to. Mercy is when God meets me in my utter misery 
my bankruptcy, my shamefulness, and he leads me out of that into glory. That's called liberation. This is a magnificent truth about our God that he shows mercy, but we have to admit our helplessness, our bondage, our shame, the whole mess we've made. He's moved with compassion if we admit our need. He's profoundly sympathetic if we cry out and ask for forgiveness. But if in self-righteousness we think we've obeyed enough of God's commands, if heartlessly we love those who help us, we'll be condemned on judgment day. There's really two judgments spoken of here. There's one person who is shown judgment without mercy and the other person who is shown judgment with mercy. Those are your only two hopes. Both of them involve you being judged. The question is, will you be judged with God's mercy or will you be judged without it? I love the word liberty here, the law of liberty. It indicates just how much we need from Christ. Check this out. This is the Statue of Liberty. Lady Liberty welcoming people to our shores. This is a beacon of hope to people who are fleeing from persecution. America was founded by people, Protestants, who were running away from religious persecution. They wanted to form a land where there's freedom, freedom of expression and worship. Check it out. Here's the the plaque inside the Statue of Liberty. It says this, uh, halfway down, it says this, uh, it says, Keep your ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Wow. This This portrays how Christ receives you into his land. You don't show up impressive. He doesn't look at you and say, I got to have that girl in my kingdom. You show up helpless, pathetic, filthy, penniless, poor, shameful. Do you know what, do you know what sits at the feet of the Statue of Liberty? Check this out. At the feet of the Statue of Liberty, what do you see there? There's broken shackles. It's like you come to this country, chink, 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 chink. And you need someone to break the shackles off so that you can come in and enjoy freedom. That's how everybody gets into heaven. If you think you're putting on your little righteous show and God's like, get in here, you're wrong. You're in bondage to sin. And Jesus must liberate you from the law. And then he shows his mercy by saving you. When you know that that's how God loved you, You can't look around at people in need and be like, well, take care of yourself. James says that you have then become a judge with evil thoughts. Here you have been freed by the judge, liberated, and now you put that robe on and you look down on people and condemn them. How shameful is that? And it's proof that you're not saved. We have to admit we're guilty in God's courtroom. We have to receive God's mercy in Christ. And then the next one is this, we have to reflect God's mercy with every word and deed. The mercy and love of God should flow through us to others. It says here in verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love this picture here. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. There you are, standing in God's court of law. 
And exhibit A is how loving you've been to those in need. Love is the greatest proof of faith admitted in God's court of law. Love. We don't, we're not saved because we love others. We love others because we're saved. God doesn't accept us because of all of our good deeds. But if we're truly saved, there will be proof. And that proof will show up in how we love other people. Lovelessness displays lawlessness in the heart. When we're merciful, we reflect God has been merciful to us. That's what it means when it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. This mercy is divine. God has given you mercy, but it's human. You have given mercy to others. It's both. That's an amazing picture. And it says this mercy triumphs over judgment. It's like judgment is grabbing onto you, about to drag you down to hell, and mercy, like a gladiator, comes and vanquishes judgment and leads you in victory up to heaven. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How foolish it is then for you to be friends with a judgmental spirit. Mercy is your friend. Mercy saved you. Mercy is what your hope is on the way to heaven. Judgment was trying to take you down. Mercy should triumph over judgment in our hearts. Let me ask you this as we close out. Who needs your help? Who needs you to show them the love of Christ? Who are you overlooking as you go on in your busy life? Is there someone who's sick and they could use a visit, some prayer? Is there someone who's struggling financially and they could use anything, something that you could do just to reach out and show that you're thinking about them? Is there an elderly person in your life who just needs companionship or some sort of a touch knowing that you're there for them? Maybe on your block. Is there a student who doesn't know how the bills are going to be paid or a missionary who's dependent on God's people to get by? Who are you neglecting right now? Where, this is your chance to show the love of Christ to someone else. This is your chance to prove that Jesus is alive in you. I want to give you a chance right now to write down the names of two or three people who could really use some mercy and love from you. I want you to write those names down right now. Then I want you to take a moment and to pray for these people privately. I want you to ask for God to meet their needs. And I want you to be thinking, how can you be a blessing to them this week? Go ahead and write now and do that. Write down the names of two or three people who could really use some care from you. They could be at your work. They could be in your family. They could be on your block. And let's take a moment right now to close our eyes and bow our heads and let's pray for these people right now. Let's lift them up in prayer to the Lord.
of the living God, we pray that you would fall fresh on us, filling us with the love the Father has given us. You know this love is a fruit of the Spirit. You can't fabricate it. You can reflect and ponder on what God has done for us and then show that same treatment to others. Move in us, Lord. Challenge our favoritism. Challenge our pride. Challenge our selfishness, our heartlessness. Grow us in love for those who are in need. Open our eyes to see those who need attention, care, provision. Open our eyes to see those who are alone, sick, afraid. We pray that this would be a church filled with the love of Christ. We would seize the opportunities to display that you are alive in us. Forgive us, Lord, when we overlook and miss the opportunities we have. Forgive us, Lord, when we let people struggle and convince ourselves it's not our business. Fill us, O Lord, with the great love and mercy you have shown us. May mercy triumph over judgment in our hearts as we know that your mercy will see us on to glory one day soon. We praise you for this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.